Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us Harry Lacostratus, who is the founder and CEO of Open Medical, as well as being a practicing orthopedic surgeon. And incredible enough, he's also a software engineer. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Harry. How are you? Very well, and uh, thank you for inviting me. So I read an article, which you, you posted on Pierre as well, about being a very young developer, designing, selling software. And usually when you think of orthopedic surgeons, you never put software engineering and orthopedics together. It's like a weird mix. So very keen to hear the journey of software engineering design and the motivation to study medicine. So I have always really been, as far as I remember, I've been between the two, between engineering and medicine. I think since I was very young, I think my temperament and inclination was mostly towards engineering, if I have to admit. Mm. I was very keen on mathematics and uh, chemistry and physics. Um, I was drawn into that. So uh, for, for a very long time, I was thinking about some sort of engineering, um, not necessarily software engineering at the time. And so I, I would think my talent was towards that, and it was, I was definitely being drawn. I, I think medicine came more as a vocation a little bit later. I suffered from childhood asthma when I was, uh, when I was little, so until I was probably in my sort of mid-teens. Um, and uh, I, I had a fairly frequent visits to uh, A&E. I had asthma attacks. So I started seeing, you know, that side, the caring side of... of mm. um, and and when when it came to um, making a selection, I I put in medicine as first and engineering as um, as second. Mm. Um, as you know from from the previous interviews, uh, you might know my parents got me a computer fairly early, and we we're talking now a IBM eighty eighty eight with a big mm -hmm. five and a quarter um, inch floppy disk and. <laughs> Uh, no hard drive and a little green screen. And there was not much to do, really, at the time with that. Um, I, I was lobbying for some time to get uh, an Amstrad 6128, um, which I could connect to the TV and it had colors and I could play video games. Um, but they didn't do that. They got, they got me the IBM PC. And I, I ended up sort of um, digging into that and learning slowly how to program, something that I've kept on for even, even while I was in, in medical school, essentially. So I think the decision to, to conclude the, the, my answer, um, the, the decision has always been difficult, really, mm. um, you know, uh, which way to go. And I think the vocational side of, uh, you know, my 16, 17 won and I went for medicine. So at the time, it was medicine, Abdul. It was not a specific specialty. I wasn't really yeah. aware. So mm. um, I, 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 I studied in Leicester, and that's where I did my medical degree. So tell us more about when you decided to pursue a particular specialty. I think if you take a step back, you can see if someone's interested in engineering software, why orthopedics lends itself to it. But I want to know your rationale, if my thinking is correct. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that. So I, I think I think that's probably the experience for most people. Um, I, 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 I decided fairly early on, so in my sort of fifth year, when, when we had to do our first application for our first sort of house jobs, I decided I would 
I probably preferred surgical specialties. I like the hands-on approach, and you know, I also like the more they had more ways to sort of treat patients in a more definite way. In, mm. in, 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 uh, so I, I was gravitating on 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 surgery. So I started a surgical sort of basic uh, uh, tra- um, basic surgical training program for um, two and a half years, and I went through a few specialties. So I went through um, vascular surgery, general surgery. I went through transplant um, uh, and and orthopedics. And I, I think what drew me to orthopedics was one. I think it was the more engineering of the surgical specialties in some ways. Mm. So uh, that definitely you know, um, played a role. Um, but also, it was, I think it was the team. I, I, it was a great team at the time, and I got close to it, and, you know, they, they uh, sort of exposed me to an operating theater and the different equipment. So I started understanding the mechanics of orthopedics uh, a, a lot more. And, and I think that's when I made the decision that it will be orthopedics. And I think most people would probably have that, that experience. I don't, I don't think many people, they, they know exactly what they're drawn to when they start their mm. medical career. But eventually, I think mostly through the influence of the people on, on that, you know, on, on the hospital floor, you decide which way you want to go. That's definitely interesting. The following question naturally is, while you're pursuing a surgical specialty and you eventually land on orthopedics, What's happening to the other side of your brain, the engineer, the designer, you know, mm. are you suppressing it or are you, you know, exercising it? That is, that is quite interesting. So, so for a very long time, I was only doing surgery and I was going through the surgical training. And in the middle of my soft uh, ST training, I, um, a trauma happened at the time and I started getting into this sort of digital health side. And it was becoming more and more obvious that I would need to make a decision. And it was not an easy decision to make because both of these things, they demand a lot, um, yeah. a lot of um, time and a lot of mindset and keeping up and being, you know, at sort of um, uh, at the edge of, of, of your chosen um, industry, essentially, in, in, in its time. And um, for, I did not want to leave uh, orthopedics. And it's quite interesting that uh, most of, you know, a, a lot of um, my colleagues here at Open Medical, they're doctors. The overwhelming majority have completely left medicine and I'm still practicing. Not a lot. Um, I, I've recently been sort of two, two days a week and I've uh, very recently reduced that to one day a week. I mm. think it gives me balance, essentially. Um, I, don't think I'm, I don't think I'm exercising I don't think I'm fragmenting it in my mind. I think I do both yeah. things to the best of my ability, but I definitely feel that having a connection to the clinical practice allows me to, um, what we do on the digital side, to be a better fit. To mm. I, I think there is, a, there is a cultural component and there is a, an experience uh, that you need to live through to, to understand how a clinical user of a software system would think, how yeah. why, is, why is intuitive to them and why is not. Um, so I, I think I, in many ways, the medical, my practicing informs a lot of the decisions we make, you know, architecturally and usability on, on the systems and the software we, we produce. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it also gives me a little bit of a, a respite. 
I know that yeah. sounds a little bit strange, really, but I think I find it very healthy that at least one day a week I can completely block out all the business-related or engineering-related mm. or structure and revenue and finances okay. and growth and numbers and graphs and concentrate on a person, that, you know, my patient who is just across the table. I, I, I've, mm. It's very, I, I, it's refreshing. You've talked a little bit about being on the ground, being able to see the end user, right? Talk to us a little bit about the importance of, for our clinical entrepreneurs who are listening in about the value of being and sort of uh, centering your product around the user and really understanding the problem. What I understand is, Harry, because you're in theater, you get to see how your digital product actually is used in the setting itself. Um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about the importance and how people can make sure that they actually develop a good product. I, I would say in many ways, um, the, the love, um, uh, what has been promoted in a while in the industry is about creating solutions that they are patient-centric. And to me, I always found this as, a, as an interesting concept because the reality is most of the enterprise-level clinical systems are not really interfacing with the patient as much. They mm. are mostly interfacing with the clinician. So mm. I think solutions need to be clinician-centric. And in many ways, um, the only way to do it is to practice and, and work next to clinicians and understand that, you know, traditionally software needs to be as um, as rigid as, as possible, as, as predictable as possible. And clinical practice, it has an element of unpredictability. It, it, it cannot, you know, there is an element of chaos in, in an on-call that... Yeah. You need to, you need to, I think you need to understand that and you need to yeah. cater for that. You need to create the flexibility and the tools for clinical practice is not like any other operational challenge. It's not, it's not a factory line. Things are changing all the time. Decisions have been revised and they've been walked back and they've been redone and new priorities are inserted in a, a continuously. And I, I think understanding this as a clinician will allow mm. you to create tools that, uh, um, that the, the, the other clinicians would, would like, they want, they want to use, and they, they, it, they would actually bring value to them in their mm. everyday practice. It will make what they do easier, and they will make what they do safer. And the patient is always the recipient of that value at the end. But I think you need to enable the clinicians primarily. Uh, no, absolutely, Harry. And I completely agree with that. And I love how you, I love how you phrase that as it needs to be clinician-centric because we need to be able to use that to then deliver the best possible care. Um, so talking about how we identify problems and make things easier for clinicians to deliver the best care, tell us about now... The, the story of Open Medical. I was reading it online, but I want to hear it from you, the authentic story about how you started that up. It's a grassroots, uh, it's a grassroots project. I never intended to be here. In, in, in it's, I, I landed really in, in, in what I, I currently do. So at the time, it was some time ago now, I think I was, um, I was a registrar and um, it was 2012. 
2013, and mm. we had an on-call, um, which was on a Saturday. We used to manage our trauma on a big whiteboard, and frankly, it was the only sensible way to do it because, you know, it's changing so often that, you know, you need to have a way to completely wipe it off and, you know, put it on the line below and put a new, a new, a new mm. case on, on, on where that was first. And so, so we, and, and, and on that Saturday, one of the, one of the, um, uh, one of the cleaners, uh, they walked in and, I mean, they, they managed to wipe almost half of the board off. So it, it was quite interesting because when we turned up on a Saturday, we had a trauma list. Uh, we didn't know. We, we didn't know who was on the list and who was supposed to happen. We could possibly reconstruct some of that list by going around the ward and asking who was nearby mouth. But, <laughs> but we, we didn't know. Um, all the TCI cases, the cases that they would come in as day cases. And it was by the time we managed to, and, uh, and this is the chaos, right? And, you know, the anesthetists was, you know, and the theaters were calling us. So what do we do? We, and, and by the time we reconstructed that list, it was early afternoon. So we ended up doing two small cases. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people uh, essentially did not have their operation that day for something that Arguably, it could have, we could be doing it better. It's, it's preventable. So, so I, I, I went back and I thought it must be a better way to do it. Mm. And first, it was well, let's just do a digital whiteboard. So we do it digitally, so you cannot wipe it. I mean, mm. that is the obvious solution. But as you start thinking about that, I thought, well, I mean, really. Since we're doing that, we might as well sort out the trauma handover problem because there is a little bit of a sort of a linear sort of progression. Someone will present in ED and then they will be either admitted or maybe sent home with some instructions and eventually be put on the waiting list and uh, so on the trauma list. And, and then once you're on the trauma list, well, we now have a way to have people that we can confidently schedule and people we don't need to we can you know um, we'll put it on a soft waiting pattern and see how we can manage that workload so the e-trauma came out it was adopted and it was adopted very fast mm. uh, by the hospital i was at and then as as people were rotating they were calling me so it was adopted by three or four other hospitals this is now at some point i was I was spending my weekends going around because at the time we were running this as a desktop, essentially, application on the trauma room PC. So, mm. so there was no cloud or backup strategies or it was all, uh, you know, solving the problem that you have. Uh, mm. Very haphazard. There's no company behind it. There's no <laughs> governance of any sort. No one, no one knows that we're doing that. We're just doing it as a way for us to replace a whiteboard and scraps of paper. But then people have started asking a little bit more because, you know, you start creating a database slowly. So now they want to get some, some audits. And is is at a fantastic position to give you data for audits, and and then they we want to do some of the sort of you know NISCOs, and um, you know then we wanted to do sort of an infection MDT. So I you started hacking essentially through what was originally supposed to be a trauma board to now become more and more a overarching orthopedic and trauma solution. I, at some point, I, I, every weekend, I had to, because I had to go 
in person mm. get access to the trauma room in, um, in, in that hospital and, and deploy an update. Essentially. Oh wow! So I was, and, and I was doing that three months every weekend. And we decided at the time, um, um, uh, three of us. Uh, he was uh, myself, um, Matt Prime, and my brother Costas. Um, uh, we, we saw to well, how about we set up a company? So we did set up a company in 2013. Um, to by the time we were already in four or five hospitals, but we, we, we never really activated it. We did nothing with it. And mm. we essentially remained until 2017. Eventually, you know, we all um, went out different directions. And, um, and, and both Matt and Costas, they, they moved on with other things. And in 2018, I sort of made a decision. I enjoy that. I want to do more of that. And I essentially... We um, ignited, essentially, the company started trading. Uh, um, we updated um, the whole thing uh, to PathPoint, which is a sort of a, a platform at this stage. It's not, it's not, it's not specialty specific. And, um, and it went well. I mean, there was an appetite. I think we had a good uh, fit to the market. Um, mm. We have a, an obsession with, with you know, providing real value to clinicians. Mm. And I think that has largely been recognized. That is the founding. I don't think it's opportunistic, but I don't think it's deliberate either. Mm -hmm. I think it was in many ways coincidental. Um, mm. It started as a grassroots. There was an appetite. It was developed. A company was, 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 was made to essentially cater for, for the needs of, of the clinical users that you could not do as a, as a one guy going around hospitals. There was that point that it was not physically doable. I read the story online and I heard about it and I think it's an incredible story. You're, you're essentially describing the journey of an accidental entrepreneur. You just fell into it and it very well aligned with what you're doing, your innate passions. Tell us a bit more about where you are now, how you're kind of scaling the company because a lot of the health tech founders we meet and see one of the difficulties they have is they may be doing a pilot or project in one or two hospitals. How do they scale it? What, you know, and how do you manage it as a practicing clinicians? I know you work one day a week now. How do you scale it and how do you practice and continue running a company? That is a, that is a, a great question and you're absolutely right. I think this is the value of death in health tech and um, more solutions will have applicability in mm. one or two places. But can you go beyond that? You need to have something that the market actually wants. I think this is the fundamental, um, a, a lot of times when you create solutions, you, you also develop the need as well. It's not, it's not always there. And mm. it, it, it's very easy to, to have one discussion and a need is described to you. You can falsely uh, think that that applies to everyone. And it does not. Mm. We have developed a platform that we're currently deploying in dozens, I think 130, 140 sites. And we do workflow in a variety of places. Yeah. And even in, within the same specialty, for example, virtual care in orthopedics or maternity, it's never the same. Is every solution it has local expertise and local constraints and local configurations. So the out of the box um, 
I don't think it works in digital health. Implementation yeah. is a big part of that. You need to be able to, to fit your, your solution to every organization and you need to be able to extract, to give them value for that. In many ways, as doctors, we probably had um, access. I think being a doctor gives you access um, a little bit easier, at, especially at the beginning where the access is from the floor. It gets difficult later on because now the access is, you know, um, is top down. The solutions are mostly top down and, mm. you know, the access is, you know, being a doctor does not give you an advantage to that. Um, so you, but you, you, you also need to have uh, in-house technology. Mm. I think, I think what has allowed us to do it was we could create the software ourselves. We didn't need to outsource it. And that brought the cost of that down and made it mm. viable for us to, to give us the time to expand it and to customize it and to platformize it. Um, so in many ways, I think this is where the scalability problem is. It mm. has been, it's because as a doctor, you're always thinking of a single solution as, you know, but when you start with the idea to create a digital platform, you need to have also the skill set of an yeah. engineer and to, to understand how you platformize software. How can you make software that then is viable? to deploy in multiple organizations and to create localized solutions based on that platform. So I think this is where most of the struggle is. You start so, with only half of the ingredients. So Harry, talking a little bit about the adoption now, right? If you compare and contrast adoption, right? When you were first starting out, right? Getting your colleagues to use your platform. How does that differ to now that you're you're quite large now. Do you just now show the data and people say, yep, that's great. Um, what did you used to do and how do you do so, it now? So initially it was mainly about essentially, uh, it was mostly a show and tell, um, essentially mm. business development uh, effort, right? It was, it was about demoing and, and you know, at some point it became about um, um, getting good references and, you know, they, and, and a lot of word of mouth, essentially goodwill. Getting um, uh, bigger, it, it does. It absolutely becomes about business cases. It becomes, it is about writing tenders. It is about um, engaging, uh, you know, multi-stakeholders, um, soft environments, um, a lot more people, uh, project management, digital solutions, um, you need to um, regulatory and compliance framework is quite mm. expensive to to maintain and and continue up to date. So there is definitely a a point where the scale it requires a large investment um, mm. because you, you're changing the playing field. The expectations are different, and they and the customer will not will not be forgiving to. A, a, a more mature company that they would be forgiving to a startup. Yeah. You know, yeah. they understand the concept. This is the second time we're doing it and it's a pilot. But the moment, the moment you go into a region or an enterprise and you, you have to liaise with the CIO and the CFO yeah. and, you know, the directorates, then there are, they will not give you any discounts. <laughs> you, you, you absolutely need to, you know, have an interfaces team, integrate with all the systems, um, have change management process, 
um, have support and service levels, uh, several level agreements. So it changes, the landscape is definitely changing. It does allow you to uh, deploy solutions at a larger scale and which um, more uh, more expensive, but they also have a, a similarly higher cost in terms of mm. every single operation, everything you do, uh, every operation of the business now is expensive. There's, yes. every, you know, every little thing, it, it has a cost. And yeah. currently we, we, we've been organic for, for a long time. Uh, I mean, we've always been organic, really. So we're client-funded. So we always need to make sure that we are as efficient and as effective as possible. Um, so mm. our cost of a sale and our cost of implementation is is reasonable. It, it allows us to survive and grow. This was a question I was going to come on to you. I've spoken to a few people in the space, other founders that obviously know about you, Harry. And they said you are largely revenue generating. It's what you use to grow and scale the company. The question was, there is a big frenzy in health tech companies getting the big money from VCs, the big valuations. Why did you choose to go down there? It's, it's a very difficult road. It's being bootstrapped to a certain degree. And I know you're in a position where I'm sure you can raise millions. Why continue that path? Or are you thinking of VC funding um, from a money point of view? I, I have a couple of answers to that. I think initially it would be distracting. Uh, I think that uh, during the 2018-19, up to probably halfway 2021, um, mm. it was easy. It was easy to fundraise. And um, the, you know, I call, you know, it was the era of the funny money, isn't it, really? Yeah. So um, it was, uh, and, but, but it still required a different level of effort. I felt that I could... I could not do both. Either the business would be focused on fundraising or it would be focused on solution development and, and, and footprint acquisition. And I don't think you can do both equally well um, in, in, in this space. A, a lot of people, they, uh, I feel in the industry, they create the solution and the, the end point is the fundraising. They, and I, I, I always felt that we should be in the, in the digital health business and not the fundraising business. I think this is the unkind answer in, in some ways. The second, uh, the second answer I have to that is I never felt that the constraint in scaling digital health is resource. By the time the constraint becomes um, money, you have probably passed that valley of death. Is not your growth at the first, the first steps are not, is not driven by resources is driven by market. It, I don't think it matters if you have a bank of 10 million when you start. You will still need to essentially spend the first two years developing a product, two years implementing in the first clients, and then a, a year to extract evidence about the efficacy of that, pro, of, of that, of that product. So and I, I think you will have to go through that whether you start with a bank of a hundred thousand pounds or a uh, um, hundred thousand. So I don't think it offers such an advantage early on. I do admit though that there is a point that having that resource is helpful. It will allow you to essentially streamline some of your operations, but I don't think it's at the initial stages. I think you need to establish a business model, a product, a market, and at least have a semblance of uh, sort of um, 
operations before you can, you can get uh, growth capital. Something that is applicable to a lot of other markets, the sort of the bleed scaling paradigm, I don't think is as applicable in health tech because of its, as a market is conservative and it needs a lot of time. And it's, I think these are the two different sort of, the two different reasons we, why we haven't done it. And this is probably why we are, we might do it. And we are, we definitely haven't excluded um, the, the possibility. We, we currently started um, essentially deploying um, abroad. So we, we're deploying in two or three different countries and we're essentially transferring the business models and so of our operational secret source to other jurisdictions and other markets. Um, mm. I think it's going well and I think there will be a point that we might have to inject that effort with capital. Um, mm. I feel it's probably going to be most likely the second half of 2024 um, when we're going to sort of uh, feel the need that we can we can we can accelerate with capital. You are right. Fundraising itself is like they describe a full time job in addition to running and building a company. And I think healthcare is one of those markets where you do de- you need to provide you have a viable solution. You really are solving a, a pain point. Um, and I think the way you describe it is very good. And I think a lot of the time founders now, especially young founders, they see success with VC fundraising and you know the pre seed the seeds. Um, well, naturally, the product, it may, it, it may fail. It's quite yeah. interesting, Abdul, what you, what you say. I mean, I do understand, and I do understand that, you know, it is a model that uh, is crucial. I mean, is is the, the VC model is the model that essentially enables innovations. And yeah. yes, 99% it will not work, but they will be the 1% unicorn. And I think that is the price to pay. So I do not discourage the, the, the VC model. Fundamentally, Mm. though, every business is coming down to exactly the same thing. We chose to make something for five pounds and sell it for 10 pounds instead of making for 10 pounds and selling it for five. So Mm. we we try to create a little bit of profit every time Mm. and then just do more of that. And (laughs) that aggregated profit allows us to get more staff, uh, get, you know, expand our server room and our data centers and, you know, do all the work we have to do. You described that perfectly. And it goes on to the next question, which is important is, tell us about running a company the leadership, looking after these people, you know, you're a clinician by background. I imagine you've developed leadership, but running a company is very different to running, you know, your firm on the orthopedic ward run, right? Yes. And I think um, a lot of doubt. I mean, and I have had doubts about every single decision. And um, you need to realize that you need help. You need to be, uh, I think, one of the um, more successful uh, decisions that I've made is that I have decided to enable other people uh, mm. to, to, to come in as leaders. As a leader, you need to act as a catalyst and, and allow other people to advance and develop. And they will, in return, help help lead the company that is, is growing. There's, mm. uh, I, think, I, I think as um, I, I don't think I'm a great manager. I, 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 I don't think I can manage people very well. I, I um, and uh, I think I'm a better leader. So mm. I, I think understanding your limitations and um, having a lot of doubts and always, always be willing to challenge your own assumptions 
Uh, and I have made a lot of mistakes. I, I have. I think I, I, if, I, if I knew in 2018 what I know now, I could have probably gotten here, uh, well, open medical, with probably a lot less money. I've, I've made a lot of costly mistakes. I, mm. I have. And, and I think in many ways is, you know, at the time, it's quite interesting, really, because I could either have gotten someone who knew what they were doing, and um, at the time we didn't have the resources, so I don't mm. think we had the choice, but yeah. it, it ended up being as expensive not doing that because I made the mistakes that probably that person wouldn't have done. Mm. I think I have gained insight over the last five years and I have, I'm, I'm, I'm hope, hopefully I'm making less wrong decisions now. I think I definitely have a better intuition about, about mm. things that I had five years ago, um, but I still have doubts. I, 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 I think the doubts I have is uh, on different things and different scale and different numbers. There's still, there's still doubts because it's, it's ever evolving. And it's not mm. about a single client anymore. It's about strategy and product and you know, mm. whether investment to international markets and is about channel partners and collaboration. So it's, it's a different, different scope of decision, but the same doubts. So I, I think leadership is about having those doubts mm. and challenging your assumptions and ask for help and bring people in who can act, who can help you um, make less wrong decisions. And I, I think that would be my leadership advice. Very, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And the, the honesty and the, the frankness, you know, after hearing that, I don't believe if you're an orthopedic surgeon anymore, you know? Well, I mean, it humbles you, uh, yeah. Abdul. I, mean, I, I think, you know, you have, to, you have to allow yourself to be humbled. And, you know, and because and, I don't think if you don't see what you have made wrong, you will mm -hmm. just most likely make the same mistake again. I, mm -hmm. I, and, uh, you know, I, I understand that this is not what, uh, I don't know, what the entrepreneurial temperament. I mean, I, I think there is an expectation of a, of a, of a certain sort of confidence and arrogance. Yeah. And mm. I, I don't think you should not have that. I think you should be confident. And, but I think you should also um, be inquisitive of yourselves and your own motives and your own decisions and, and be ready to, to always uh, be challenged. May, you know, as a leader, bring strong people in, mm. people that they can actually challenge you. They can call you out. It's, it's, very, it's very easy to... Um, to, to, to gain to your own bubble, as, especially as a founder. Yeah. Mm. It's a, you know, founder syndrome, right? And, and yeah. I think you should actively avoid it. No, definitely. And, and I agree. And I think we we're speaking to a few people as well. Sometimes as founders, you're so deep into it, you forget to see the bigger picture. You know, you sometimes need people to kind of pull you back a bit. Um, the last question I know, you know, you're, you're, you're strapped for time is, what is the, the end goal for Open Medical? You know, where do you want to see yourselves in a five, 10 years time? I know healthcare is a very, healthcare is like a one big on-call scenario every day, right? Tell us where you want to see yourself 
Currently, Open Medical is is about um, uh, is, it has like an ethos of of providing that value, and that is for for people on this side of the aisle as well as the customers. So, provide mm. value to the market, provide value to the healthcare, but also allow people to develop good soft careers and professionally, you know, come up in health tech and learn and get better at what they do, whether they stay with us or whether they move on and uh, you know mm. uh, so that's where uh, uh, that's what where we want to be we want to we want to be doing more of that we want to we want to scale up to different markets and um expand uh, um uh, uh, solutions to mm. other domains and other jewish to essentially uh, make a career make a, a, a life in in health yeah. technology i think it's a fascinating field i i think is um, it has uh, is is at its infancy. Mm. I think there is a lot more to be done and said. Um, health tech is something that it has under delivering for mm. fifty years. We have not been doing great. We have been spending a lot, and we have not materially changed um, anything uh, in how uh, health is provided to a population. And we have a, a long to go. In, into realizing that promise from the 70s. I mean, every other sector has done it, but mm. I don't think we have done it in digital health. And we want to be part of that journey. We want to be um, as big as we can be and as um, influential in that um, game as we can be. I think it's a noble vision, and you're right. There is so much scope and potential for health tech as an industry, and it's nice to see individuals like yourself leading um, and doing super well. Harry, I want to thank you for taking the time out, for coming here, sharing your story. We squeezed it in, but I think there was a lot of value shared actually today. Um, so it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Harry. Thank you. And um, anytime um, we can do this again.